Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Poet Oscar Wilde once said, Success is a science. If you have the conditions, you get the result. Now, in my last interview with Sunil Devady of Adesis International, we spent some time talking about the stages that businesses go through uh, and the risks that exist at each of those different points along the life cycle of the company. Today, though, I want to dig into the more practical aspects of starting a business and more of the day-to-day issues that can come up. Our guest today is an attorney an author, a public speaker, and he runs a local radio station in New York. So it's my pleasure to welcome from Queens, New York, attorney Rich Solomon. Rich, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Hey, thank you for having me. and Thank you for the privilege of being on the show. Being a guest is an honor. So thank you, because you can pick from millions of people. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you, and it's kind of following a theme. I interviewed a guest on the last episode who we talked about businesses and the challenges of starting businesses, but I thought it would be interesting to talk to you and hit it from a completely different kind of angle because probably I would imagine more than not so great stuff than maybe the good things. I don't know. So what I thought we could do is I'm coming into your office and I'm going to give you some different kind of scenarios and just tell me what comes to mind because I know we've chatted, you have a lot of experience. And so I think the first thing would be when you have people coming in wanting to start businesses, what are some of the real potholes or things you find that continually come up that you've really got to work people through? Well, my first question is, are you a solo owner or is there a group of people because the dynamic's going to really be different? Sometimes there's one guy who comes in and says, I want to do X, and then he'll have employees or contract help, outside vendors, things like that. Or there's the partners, and that's always a little bit tricky because right then, as soon as two people come in, First question is, who are you representing? Because sometimes you have the connection to one person, but they come in as a package. And then, so you can't have a divided loyalty. You have to represent all of them equally, or you really have to represent one only, have the other person get an attorney, and then bring them in together. There's inherent conflicts with people because there's always an imbalance of work, money, contributions, things like that, amount of hours worked. One of the things that I kind of talk about all the time is the you're nothing without me scenario. People come in and it's like, I'm the guy that invented the great pen that we're going to make all the money on. And it's like, yeah, but I'm the one who financed the pen and got it to the printing company and the ink supplier and all the other stuff. So everybody kind of has an over-evaluation of what they brought to the table and a little bit of an under-evaluation of the other person. And there's a real imbalance there. And it's like, one of the words you always hear, sweat equity, <laughs> which means I'm not putting any money in. <laughs> That's always a problem because it's like, well, wait, oh, I put in the sweat equity. Yeah, but I put in real money. And then you get conflicts of, well, real money needs to be paid back. No, no, I put in sweat equity. You put in the money and now we're equal. So the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that everybody has very realistic expectations on what's the starting point and what you're going to do moving forward and how the business is going to be run. You'd be amazed at like how people have perceptions of how many hours they're supposed to work. Oh, I'm not working at night. <laughs> what do you mean they're working at night? 
We're like a, an all-night pharmacy. <laughs> you know? That's our niche because it really closes at night. We're going to be up. Yeah, but I'm not working at night. Well, then what good are you? Because we need somebody to work the night shift. Yeah, but I have to do this. I have to do that. I got to take care of this. So a lot of questions are not the legal questions. What are the business dynamics? First of all, the other thing I kind of sit down with people and I really challenge the feasibility of their idea. For example, we're going to make bagels. Well, Bayside Queens has 92 bagel stores. Yeah, but we're hand rolled and boiled and then baked. And then we use like some kind of Himalayan pink salt that gives it this incredible. And I'm like, okay, how much is this? Oh, it's going to be like $25 a bagel. I'm like, because they're special. I'm like, too special. <laughs> Competition is going to eat you alive, literally eat you alive. And you have to sit down with people and say, do you know if your idea is going to really work? Because people have the, if you build it, they will come philosophy. And that's always an economic disaster because you put in all this money, put all this effort, and no one's done a feasibility study on how much competition there is, how much market saturation there is, how much collision of similar names, Bayside Bagel, Queens Bagel, Whitestone Bagel, Best Bagel. At some point, everything gets really fuzzy out there. So when I really sit down with people and I almost say, look, you want a lawyer, and I get that, I'm happy to be the lawyer, but let's actually sit down and think about how is this business going to run? What's the business? What is the legal name? What is the marketing plan? What's the marketing budget? What's the branding? What's the differentiation of what you do? How are you different? If you're over-specialized and you're too niche you may not find anybody. And if you're just like one of a thousand coffee places, you really are just fighting. It's like we had a client that wanted to enter into the liquor industry with a certain kind of liquor. And that market was really, really crowded. And it was like, yeah, but this is going to be special. And it's a special this. And this is that. And this is the branding shtick that we're going to do. And in the end, it's like you're still fighting against well-entrenched brands and people's perceptions of what they like and what they're used to. And then you have to sort of fight to figure out how you're going to elbow somebody off that shelf and now get on the shelf. And then even if you're sitting on the shelf in the bar, the people may not want novel. One of the reasons why radio stations play the same old music is there's, there's a lot of familiarity with a lot of old music. And they kind of feel like we can only invest in the limited time that we have in the hits. So you have to really sit down with people and really flesh out where are we going? What are we doing? How are we doing it? What are the expectations? It's a really deep process. A couple of questions. You mentioned partners, and I know we've talked about this before. If you were to put a percentage on how often partnerships work out, I mean, is that a fair question? And I know I'm speaking from my own experience. I started this company in 95 and had a partner when I left. That lasted a year. I had another partnership arrangement that lasted a few years. Up until really now, I mean, it's just, I've gone through a few different situations. I'm just wondering. It basically parallels family relationships. People get together and they don't necessarily grow together. They don't necessarily have the same vision together. And sometimes people just stay together because they're related in the same business or it's a multi-generational business. And also, let's say that my ancestors founded the 8-Track Tape Company (laughs) and it was great in its heyday, but now the business dynamic's not there. We didn't change with the times. I don't really want to be in the business. I want to go high tech. I want to work at Silicon Valley. No, this is the family business. How could you abandon us? You know, and you get all that. The one of the thing I guess it never really gets said is that the underlying psychological factors always lead to litigation. It's always about the negligent hiring, the overly optimistic 
view of everything's going to work just fine. We can just work on a handshake. We can cut corners. We can do this. And all of those things are like a thousand little cuts. And it's not the one cut that'll kill you. And it's not the 50th cut. But the 51st is when you start bleeding really bad and you need more than just a Band-Aid. And you see, I see it all the time. One of the things I tell people is, I know how to write contracts because I don't write them based on boilerplate. I base it on all of the destruction and disappointment I've seen in people. Oh, we don't really need insurance for that. (laughs) Or nobody gets a permit for that. Or it's like, if I get the permit, it's too expensive and I can't make any money. So you get all this stuff. Or I know someone or this will do this or don't worry. Whenever they say don't worry, I start wearing like the flak jacket. (laughs) (laughs) I've had people do not so smart things. And you say to them, are you really sure that that's what you want to do? And they're committed. Oh, everyone does this. And I'm like, yeah, but. So, all right, let me ask you this then, because this is a really interesting point. Whenever I hear stories like this, I think to myself, how does anybody ever successfully have a business? Or is part of the process of growing from this little idea into something that becomes sustainable, going through these changes. In other words, I have a couple of clients I can think of and that they started a business together and they just succeeded together. Never had any issues, big issues that blew the thing up. It was never at risk, but that just seems so rare. To some extent, the harsh economics and the environment thin out the crowd. That's always a reality. Business dynamics change. Look at the businesses that did not survive COVID that were sound before COVID, but COVID stressed their business models out in ways they never thought of. Restaurants didn't have customers, or they only did takeout all of a sudden. They weren't prepared, or they were too labor-intensive, or their food was so they had too much space, or whatever it is. And everything that was their basic business belief and foundation was all upended. Then there's all kinds of things like regulation that can upend a business too. Like a friend of mine was a like a private eye. He was like more like an information broker in, in a particular state. And then one day they said, from now on, if you do this work, you need to work under a private detective and then get your own license. Well, that killed the industry in two seconds. Then there were lawyers, for example, who were called per diem lawyers. You hire them for the day. And there used to be teams of these lawyers and they would do all these in-court appearances, and they made a ton of money because maybe they charged you 100 bucks for the appearance, but they would do 10 to 20 appearances a day, make a lot of money, not really have clients because they would just show up and fill out forms, hand in papers, answer calls, adjourn things. But then when COVID hit, everyone went remote. So then all the people who would send people would just now sit in their office with a sweater and a little tie and do the court appearance just like we're doing now. And the per diem was no longer needed. So that whole industry was wiped out literally overnight. And I see tons of that where a regulation comes in or something. So there's a lot of things that thin out the herd. Now, what I would say is a lot of those factors are stressors and the stressors bring out the worst in people because they'll make bad. Like, all right, so you know what? All right, our restaurant's not doing well. Let's get cheaper food. Let's fire half the staff. Let's only be open on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then you see like, well, then your customers don't think you're in business or the quality has gone down and they're used to something else. So your reputation or your branding is now sinking. And then what you always see is the death spiral. And then that causes the friction between the people who run it. What's the rescue plan? All right. So you and I are now in a radio business. We're doing radio shows together. 
And all of a sudden, you know, we're not getting the things. And then you go, Rich, you got to do more comedy. You got to be funnier. And I'm like, I don't know how to be funny. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you need more hard guess on data because maybe people pay more for that. And then there's all this back and forth and friction because they were stressed. So maybe they were okay, but then something changed. And then there was, not everybody was rowing in the same direction. And I see a lot of that. People just blame and yelling and anger and frustration as opposed to like, like what I always say is the Navy tells you, here's a frying pan and a knife and an empty canteen. We're going to drop you off in a group of 12. We'll see you in three weeks. Now, either you get along <laughs> or you don't. Yeah, I'll vote for the or you don't, I think. But at least those people, and I have the highest respect for the Navy, and I have a relationship with a number of people from the Navy, and I appreciate all the access they've given me and things like that. But in many ways, I use that model saying, if we were stranded on an island and asked to survive, are we going to like just start killing each other? Or are we going to work together under very stressful conditions? Imagine Apollo 13, when all those guys were in the capsule, and they started fighting with each other on, it's your fault. Well, if you didn't do this, and if you didn't do that check, they were like, all right, we got to survive this. Our job one is survival, and this is all we have to work with, so let's use our heads, let's work together, hope for the best, and don't worry about all the friction. So the one thing I would say that no one really wants to say there's, there's a psychology that needs to be overcome, and that's jealousy, anger, cutting corners, laziness, a lot of things that just people don't want to really face, because I see the consequences of those decisions all the time. I'm tired of working. I want to use other people's money. See, all these phrases and things like that, a lot of times I'm like, look, it's hard to be in business. It requires so much sacrifice to run a business, and we don't get the tools in school. I don't care what school you go to. And this is what kind of goes back to your point. I only learned about all the businesses that I've done because I've helped run so many different kinds of businesses and I've seen so many peaks and decimations. And you kind of get a feel and then you start noticing patterns and you see what works and what doesn't work. And then you just start applying that. That's an interesting point because as I think most people would think you go to an attorney and I'm trying to think of my own experiences. I don't know that people generally get into the, you call it the psychology, but the emotional dynamics. I mean, I've worked with a number of people over the years. I've had assistants, I've had admin help. It's really hard to get, find people who are willing to put their egos aside and really look to a greater good. You know what I mean? Because to me, I think, until you can tell me this is wrong, but to me, you have to see that the enterprise is something bigger than just making money. Because if that's the end game, I mean, you obviously we're not in these work for our volunteer. We got to pay our rent or whatever, but there's got to be a greater purpose to it. And I've got two people I work with now in my office that completely get it, that are committed to creating this thing and see our firm in a different light. And then knowing that the revenues will come, you know what I mean? But that seems pretty rare. I mean, it's hard to find people like that. I have a different approach. I'll tell you what the standard approach is. The lawyer says, come into the office. They give you coffee. They tell you, we're going to work together and sign the retainer. And we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I actually tell people, I'm not going to charge you for today. We're going to have brutal truth time. And I really want to flesh out from them what we're going to do. And if I actually think that it's not going to work or it needs to be revisited, I will say, I don't think this is a great idea. I'm not going to charge you for today because I don't want them to have the bitterness of, I spent X dollars for a consultation only to be told that this is not a good idea. Because then again, they're 
psychology, like this is a great idea and you don't like it or you don't understand it. And I want to be able to say, look, I just, I'm looking out for you. And a lot of times people kind of, after I kind of give them the tough love speech, they're like a little dazed and I'll say, call me back in a week. And they'll say, all right, you know, I thought about that. And then we'll either shift the idea or maybe the lease was too expensive or there was too many assumptions or they needed too many people. It was bottom heavy or it's top heavy where there was too many people, quote, on the top, and nobody really on the bottom of the pyramid to actually do the work. And the other mistake that I see constantly is the number one problem with business is that people use the, quote, cheapest, most inexperienced people to answer the phone. The phone is the face of your business. When they say, well, it's, hi, Rich Solomon, I want to talk to Tom Jones. Well, what is this about? Blah, blah, blah. And this and then you get the 700 questions. I like, he knows that. Well, he's not in right now. Mate. Could you send him an email? I said, I want to talk to him. Can you just put me through? And I can see that all of those things, those are the people that look at the mail and they decide which is the mail that gets thrown out, which is junk or whatever, or perceived junk, which is why handwritten letters are always good. Because at least that, those usually go a little, that's like a, a tip. Handwritten letters old school. usually get through the pile. <laughs> Either that or postcards where you say, Emerson is rich. I have a great idea. Call me on about a radio idea. <laughs> at least somebody in your office will be like, oh, hey, look at this. They have an idea for you. As opposed to your car warranty needs to be renewed or it gets lost in that. You have these reality check conversations I'm imagining pretty frequently versus that's an awesome idea kind of the thing. The problem is there's not a lot of great new ideas out there. And... I always tell people about the dangers of being a me too. Like, for example, people come to me and they say, I want to be a franchise. And I'm like, all right, well, what's so special about this franchise? Because franchises usually work for the franchisor at the expense of the franchisee. They think, well, it's a good business. I'm like, well, what do you know about the franchisee? I don't want to use any particular examples, but let's say the franchise is like a sandwich thing. There's all kinds of sandwich things. And I'm like, you could be like a great deli and not have to pay franchise fees and all this other stuff. And maybe you'll have a different menu or a better menu or a gourmet menu. And you know about the franchise fees. You have to buy all their stuff. You have to do their hours. Do they own the property? Do you own the property? Some businesses make more money being landlords than as franchisors. So there's a lot of things that I don't know that people do enough research. A lot of times people come in and I'll ask Literally, the cross-examine, well, what about this? What about that? Have you thought about this? How are you going to pay for that? What if this doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? What if this takes 10 months as opposed to two months? What if the build-out is three times more than you expect because of rising prices? What if there's delays in getting permits? What if you're not going to get the variance? Then what? And I've seen everything. People don't like to get their bubble burst. I've had similar conversations kind of along the same vein. I always look at my job as trying to poke holes in a person's financial. It's like, well, that happens to somebody else. We're all somebody else to somebody else, right? You know what I mean? And you start making people uncomfortable. So I can imagine that that can be difficult sometimes. It is, but I always tell people, if you're here for me to just rubber stamp the idea that I'm not doing you a service, all right? Because you'll only hate me five years from now and or less. It's almost like pressure test the space capsule in the simulator or on the launch pad with crash dummies as opposed to with real people in front of a large audience. <laughs> and so like, I thought it would work. <laughs> it looked good on paper. And I'm always like, look, I usually tell a lot of stories. People love stories and people embrace stories. So I'll tell like a story like this. I had a client, good client, great client. 
and they had a young person managing the file. And they were like, we're having difficulty with this client. What's the problem? They owe us money. What do we know? They don't answer the phone. They don't answer their email. Well, what do you know about the people? They don't answer the phone. They don't answer the email. And I'm like, okay, we got to get away from the computers being the end all to all things. Have you ever met them? Do you know what they do? Do you know where they are? Have you been to their offices? There have been any face-to-face meetings? No, they don't answer the phone and they don't answer their email. <laughs> okay. So I asked the guy that I know, where are they? Got the address. It was like six avenues down and three or four blocks over. We walk over there. We walk in and we see one person surrounded by a bunch of boxes and some packing tape. And the guy says, who are you? And I said, I'm with the people you owe money to. And he goes, oh, I know who you are. He said, we're the parent company. The job went south. The project was disbanded. Everybody was fired. We're boxing everything back and we're done. So I said, could I have your card? So I got his card and on a phone call, we settled. Now we probably got about 20 cents on the dollar. But if we had gone the way of no phone, no email, it would have been zero cents on the dollar. And at least through getting up, being in the real world, (laughs) not the cyber world, and going in, I found out what was going on, the truth, spoke to the right person who wrote the check. And literally that was within an hour door to door, literally door to door. So I tell stories like that because people need to see that the experiences that they're facing have been experienced by other people and that they don't get the rough education. I'm sure you've seen people make all kinds of terrible financial decisions and you have to kind of go in and clean up the mess or now they're in big pressure and they have to like make it all back much faster. And it's so like, well, that's not really realistic. We have to be slow and steady. We have to be methodical. We have to be careful. We have to be risky enough, but conservative enough. And you got to do a whole balance. And that's what I try to tell people that you got to be balanced. There's a lot of balance and a lot of it's a tightrope. Okay. So clearly what I've taken from this part of the conversation, it's a miracle anybody ever starts a business and actually makes any money at it and does it without killing whoever it is they're involved with doing this. So what happens, because the other thing is, so let's just step like a few years down. So let's say the miracle happens and you have somebody that has a good idea. They have a good situation with their staff, their peers, management, whatever. What are some of the issues that come up for businesses that have been going along a while? Is it just simply that their idea becomes stale and it sort of loses its relevance? Well, there's so many things. Number one, invest in training, okay? Staff needs to be trained and you need to always sort of stay current be part of the industry, go to trade shows, read trade papers, belong to trade associations, talk to people, look at the trends, see what they are. Be surrounded by experts. There is no shortage of really good, smart people out there. And they don't need to be W-2 employees. They could be outside consultants. They can be brand people. They could be marketers. They could be outside salespeople. They can be people that help you with HR issues that kind of thing. There are many great businesses out there and the smart people stay in pace, don't get negligent about things, play by the rules, hire help that they need, hire experts that they need, stay relevant and course correct as needed. Many people survive COVID because they use the right intuition about what kind of money to spend, how to navigate through choppy times. And and some people did it admirably, or they invented businesses to conform to the moment. That was my going to be my other question. You mentioned that earlier about the COVID. I know I have a client who owns a restaurant down in Long Beach, 
that went to the curbside pickup. They had to tweak their menu. And then eventually they went through all the, it's like a blur, all the different, it seemed like everything was changing every week. But eventually there was outside dining, but they survived it. And what ended up happening, which was kind of a cool thing, was they learned they didn't need as many tables. Effectively, the permanent changes that came out of it was a more efficient restaurant. They required less staff, more of a flow. I mean, the whole thing, there was a positive that came out of it. I was just curious if you had any stories or situations of people in New York that you can think of that really were able to navigate through this. I do. One industry that was hit very hard was the health club industry, because here you are <laughs> expelling air and breathing air and everybody on top of each other and can't use saunas, can't do this, all the things. And yet I have one client that has more than one location and they actually grew their businesses during COVID. They were incredibly smart. They bought like all the stuff, the HEPA filters, the UV filters, the, I don't know, whatever it is that made it almost like a hospital-like environment. They spread out the equipment. They did whatever the local government regulations were, but they really went beyond that. And it wasn't just like masks. It was so much more than that. It was sort of like when you came in, everything was contactless and you were able to do your workout in a way that was safe and you were able to work and... They marketed themselves as being as compliant as you could be, short of having like a spacesuit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And it brought people in because people were cooped up, wanted a workout. They were not even leaving their pajama Zoom meetings. <laughs> it was the kind of thing where a lot of people were like, if I don't get out, I'm going to become a veal. <laughs> or a Kobe cow or something. And they were so successful in being able to deliver what people wanted with the psychological comfort that every real precaution was being addressed. And they had no transmissions of COVID that they were aware of or that were reported in all this time. Now, part of it could be that the people who go to the gym are maybe younger and healthier or things like that. And that gives you a good start. And we had all kinds of meetings about this. And it put a big burden on business. You had to check vaccine cards and this and that. And there was a lot of public relations issues that we had to navigate. So the lawyer part of me had to really be a part of a lot of the meetings in which marketing and customer relations and consumer satisfaction all were intersecting. But they really had brilliant, brilliant ways of addressing what could have been a business killer. They invested the money. They were hypervigilant. They were very reassuring. And as a result, You see, now that we're coming out of COVID, the upswing now in the business, because some people are still trying to reestablish their base. They're ascending from a high plateau because now that things are settling down and people are going back to work and maybe there's more money in people's pockets because they're more fully employed as opposed to being underemployed. They're expanding and doing well, where a lot of other people may not be. And they really thought about what kind of equipment should we have? How should it be positioned? Everything from the spray bottles and the alcohol, the things to clean hands, to clean handles, to wipe things down, what's on the floor, what people touch together. It was all thought of. They brought in probably the best people you could think of, and everything was well worth it. The experts provided expert advice. The marketing people passed the information along. These people delivered the services as promised. The expectation met reality. 
and it was translated into economic success. That's interesting because I know I've got friends who own gyms, and I think the general thing of was, how can I get by without having to jump all through all these hoops, <laughs> darken the windows, <laughs> whatever, keep the music real low, park in the back, whatever it might be. Mike sent me. <laughs> I'm a friend of Mike. <laughs> yeah, the secret knock at the door in the back, right? Right. No, that's good to hear. I, I think that's there's some a lot of good lessons in that. It just instead of just fighting it, you just embrace it and adapt. Adapt or die. That's my thing. One story I tell all the time, if I may, is when the gold rush came to California, did you want to be a miner or did you want to sell them canteen shovels and jeans? Right? Because the people who really made the money with the people selling food, canteens, shovel, horse chat, whatever it is, as opposed to the miners who were speculating, and that's what they called them. They were speculators. Some made some money, some got crushed. But the people that sold the dry goods and the equipment, they all did okay. No, that makes sense. Well, you know what that is, Rich? That's a philosophy I've embraced all my life. It's like a natural contrarian. When everybody's going this way, you go this way. That generally tends to work pretty well in life and especially in business, I think. So there's one other thing I wanted to talk about that you alluded to earlier, and it's the dynamics of the family-owned business. I've had some exposure in the past with some clients, and I mean, it's, you know what it's like? It's like situations where there's beneficiaries on accounts, and mom has got dementia, she goes into the care, and all of a sudden you've got one of the children, the responsible one, right? There's always the responsible one. It's the, the successor trustee who gets to manage all this stuff. And then you got the other ones who some are, they don't care. Other ones have opinions, but then it's the spouses, right? It's the spouses of the ones that seem to be in the background, fuel up throwing kerosene on the thing. And so my point is, it's always, it seems like there's these variables that the more people in the mix, the more problems you run into. And anyway, I'd love to just have you elaborate on some of your experiences with that, because it seems like a very difficult Obviously, we've laid the groundwork here that it's very difficult to have a business, maintain it. There's just so many things that can go wrong. But then you throw, that to me is just a whole nother dynamic that just adds layers of problems. Well, one interesting thing is in business, you need to trust and respect people. And if you actually grew up with the person you're in business with, like my brother and I, all right, we actually get along really great. And we share an office. He does the real estate. I do the litigation. And there's just a very deep respect and we grew up together and we don't fight and we just really do the teamwork thing and we try to look forward. So you'll never find a better person. We've been office mates since like 1996 or something like that or something like that. And there's no fights over it. You use too much paper and who spilled this in the corner? We don't have any of that. And it's because we grew up together in a way that we were basically nurtured, that the family was the most important core element of who we are and who we're going to be, and not let it to be a house divided. So in some ways, if you get the right people in the family, whether it's two generations, three generations, but you have that respect and trust, I could leave $20,000 in cash on the table, go to lunch, and there may be a dollar more there (laughs) when I come back. Then a few that fell on the floor and somehow disappeared. There's that. So there are some tremendous advantages in having a family business because nowhere in the world are you going to meet a stranger that you will know as long and as well and as deep. And you would hope that because people are in family together, 
that they wouldn't do anything to betray trust or things like that. And of course, it hasn't happened yet, of course. But you would hope that it would happen less than people who are less invested. And I mean, if you're invested, let's say, do you really want to tank your relationship with your parents, your brother, sister, cousin, niece, nephew, whatever it is, over something that is trivial, where maybe that trivial thing will be more intensified in a non-family relationship. So family businesses could have advantages. Another advantage to family businesses is apprenticeship. Let's say you're in a multi-generational or whatever business. Like I used to represent a paint business in Bayside. There. And it was founded by this guy who I didn't know, but he formed it like in the early 1900s. And they literally had a horse and wagon in Bayside. I represented their son who lived into his 90s and then and his son, and they were all in the paint business. So there was a lot of apprenticeship between grandfather, father, son in the business, you know, how things are done, the relationships with the major paint suppliers, the local people, the national paint manufacturers, all of that. You can't get a hundred years of business experience and networking from scratch like these people had. They literally were born into the business in a way. And they grew up in the business, and you hear about that. I basically grew up in this business. And you can see that with car mechanics, all kinds of things. Or maybe you have an older sibling, and they go out, and then you work with them when you graduate and catch up in age and things like that. So there are unique and tremendous advantages to being in a family business. You have to just maximize those advantages. Also, if you're coming into a family business and it's already established, you don't need to put in all that startup capital all of that trial and error stuff, because at least you'd hope that there's enough business foundation that maybe it's the new person, you come in with the quote, new refreshing ideas, but you don't have to invent everything from scratch. At the pay store, it's really funny, the accounting office, sometimes they would just lower something on a string with a clipboard and somebody would sign and then they'd reel it back up. I mean, it wasn't high tech, but it just showed that they were like old fashioned and fun in a way. And they were like a real people business. Everybody kind of knew them. They did paint, they did wall coverings, they did flooring, and they still were able to compete with the big box retailers and stuff like that. And that's like truly one set of advantages that you do have. I have so many different family businesses, people in construction, whether they're brothers or two generations or husband and wife, you'd be amazed what businesses the people either be, are a part of or create. Some of them are incredibly innovative in what they do. I have a whole collection of shirts from all my clients, whether it's car washes or construction or this kind of work, or whether it's a heavy-duty equipment or truck uh, sales. One of my clients has, I have all these yellow shirts, and they're from their traffic safety company. I represent a towing company. I have their shirt. I have another garage in Long Beach. <laughs> I wear their shirts. I'm kind of like a billboard <laughs> for everybody. It was one of the points I wanted to make, which is whether you're in a family business or not, you have to be a billboard and a constant promotions machine for your business. Don't necessarily wear the logo of somebody else. Wear your logo. Make sure that your business, you always have business cards. You're always meeting people, waiting rooms of wherever you are, not necessarily doctor's offices, but like at the tire place, at whatever. Meet people, talk to them. It's interesting you bring that up because... One of the things that is shifted for in my work is the receptiveness to the virtual meeting. I mean, I'm here in Southern Utah now. I've still got clients in California, but I've got clients all over the country. And 
people are become more receptive to these kind of calls. But there's also it's required a conscious effort on our part to try to personalize it as much as you can. And I think we've gotten actually really, really good at it. But the reason I bring this up is because that is, I think there's a demand. I think people want that personal. I hear business cards and first thing I think is, well, when's the last time I gave out a business card? Everything's email, right? Right. You know what I mean? But people want, I think because everything's gotten so impersonal, I think what you're talking about is actually becoming more in vogue again, I suppose, if that sounds right. The basics haven't changed. People still hunger for human connection. You could start business relationships by building trust, by building awareness, by building confidence. There are 7 billion lawyers out there, essentially. Why pick me? Why go to this bagel store? Why to go to this gas station for a repair? It's because there's either a level of comfort or trust familiarity or my brother uses, my brother buys bicycles from these people, so maybe I'll check them out. But the more social networking we have, the more it's, we're not really that close anymore. The true social networking really has got to be people talking. That's why I always tell people, call me. A lot of my emails are like, call me, because I want to get away from the impersonal nature of the endless texting wars and the endless email chains. And I want to talk because the inflection of your voice, the comforting of your voice, the sternness of your voice, which is, I really wouldn't violate the permit. (laughs) If it says don't start before seven and it's killing you, then just start at 659.59. And that doesn't necessarily get translated well in email. It also, in terms of litigation, I can't tell you how many people you see all the emails that are attached as exhibits. And a lot of times what I'll say is, well, if you look, it says, call me. I moved to disqualify a lawyer and we were going back and forth. I kept on saying, well, call me. And he's like, oh, you didn't do that. I'm like, and I just said to the court, <laughs> he's disqualified either way, but he should have called me. <laughs> he had a conflict. <laughs> and all of the texts don't really make a hill of beans. Rich, it's good talking to you. You just have a lot of information and a lot of experience. I can see why people just thought, like I said, on this conversation, I mean, you're just a genuine person. I think that's the other thing people really want is somebody just going to be straight up with them and just like you said, personal. So tell me before we end, tell me about your radio show. Okay, so if you go to the solomonchannel.com, that's the core place. So I'm actually very fortunate. I'm on FM. I'm on 88.1 FM in Brookville, New York. Uh, The station's called WCWP. We're a Long Island public radio. And I've been on the air since 2005. And I've had all kinds of really cool shows. The show's called Taking Care of Business, but it doesn't really have that much business in it. It was sort of a, an ode to Elvis, Tinkus, and I guess Bachman Turner Overdrive, because I love music. But with a lot of inside access, a lot of talking to experts, I've met some really incredible people. I've interviewed people as well-known as Tim Russert and Steve Wozniak and Ralph Baruch, who founded Viacom, and Pia Lindstrom and Dr. Ruth and Ed Koch, the mayor of New York. And I've had incredible conversations. I met Denny Lane in a bar, and we just sat and talked about music. I met Carmen Apici, the drummer from Vanilla Fudge, and I interviewed him in a hotel lobby. We were just kind of hanging out. I've met people who are airborne rangers, people who were Marines in World War II. I met a guy who was fascinating. I get the greatest people calling me and saying, you need to interview so-and-so. So this guy said, you need to interview my cousin. And literally, his cousin was the guy who printed up the Japanese surrender documents from World War II. So I went to his house, and he said, 
oh, you want to see them? <laughs> so he takes out a, he was a printer, and he takes out, he goes, well, told me to print out like 12, so I made like 15. So here's like the other three. <laughs> and they're signed by MacArthur <laughs> and Chester Nimitz and whatever. And he was also in charge of like war crimes evidence during post-war things. And I saw some horrific atrocity photos. And people have such great stories. And I actually show the actual surrender documents and you see all the signatures and you see how like everybody in the government of Japan, like everyone had to sign the the Minister of Agriculture, the Minister of Transport. Like, it wasn't just like the emperor. It was like everybody had to surrender. And it was interesting. It was an actual legal document written in two languages. And it was like, it didn't just say like, oh, we surrender. It was like an unequivocal, total, we surrender, we're done, inescapable language. And they didn't even teach this stuff in history. So I met people like that. I met people who were on the forefront of the environmental movement. One guy takes plastic out of the ocean and upcycles it back into oil. I mean, fascinating stuff. People who do agriculture farming out of either shipping containers or like agri-boxes in your house. I've done house inspectors, clutter experts, suicide prevention people, gamblers anonymous, narcotics anonymous, tons of rock musicians, concert reviews, being in the green room before concerts and things like that. I met people from Sticks, the Gin Blossoms, the Spin Doctors, hung out with them. I got to go on stage and introduce like Livingston Taylor, David Bromberg's band, and a few other people. I didn't do John Waite, but I was there and I said hello to him. And then one of the coolest things I got to do is I have a relationship with the Navy. They have a program in New York called Fleet Week. And I've actually been flown onto the Kearsage, the Batan, and the Arlington by way of military helicopters, the CH 54s. And I've landed on the carriers at sea. And then got to hang out on two overnights. One night, I was part of a group of journalists, and I got to sit at the night deck, the night bridge, with the captain. And then the next morning, all of us, there was about nine of us, we sat with the captain, and we interviewed him jointly for about an hour and 15 minutes. It was an unbelievable experience. And I got to be with the air boss. I got to see the flight ops. I saw the touch and goes, Osprey's land. I saw everything. Vultures Row, taking film. Got to see going under the Verrazano Bridge and take the shot where you swing around and you see the before and after of the bridge. Saw them salute the Statue of Liberty. I saw them salute the World Trade Center before. It was very moving. I have kind of chills thinking about that. It's pretty amazing to see when they say, hand salute, and then everybody is saluting the Statue of Liberty on the way in, and they do it alternating Navy, Marine, Navy, Marine, all across the side of each side of the carrier. They're called helicopter landing docks. I've done food shows. I've cooked with people. One family business, speaking of really successful family business, was an Italian restaurant in New York called Frellini's. They were there for 60, 70 years. And they would tell me all the secrets of how they made the food, how they cooked. I think we made chicken and broccoli. <laughs> and they would tell me they'd use Munster cheese because it melts better. But these things touch you. And just like our interview here, all this great interaction and energy and information, it's great because you have so much expertise that you have that you share through just asking the questions that you ask. And you ask that to different people. So it shows that you're basically asking the questions that your guests would like to ask if they were sitting where you were sitting, or they could be in the room with us. So it's the SolomonChannel.com. And I have a whole YouTube thing. So between Amazon Prime, My Father's Place Radio, I have an environmental show called Rocket Green. I've taken care of business. 
But between WCWP.org, which is our FM stream, our podcast on YouTube. So if you do TCB Radio, WCWP, all one word, you can get us on YouTube. But if you go to Solomon Channel, you'll see some pictures of me with, I guess, things that kind of look like this and <laughs> the whole bit. And the boom mic and the radio equipment with all the levels and all that cool stuff. That's where you and I have a kind of our kindred spirits, I suppose, because you're not beholden to anybody on your show. I mean, you can do interview who you want for whatever reason. And that's, I mean, finance is kind of the thread in mind, but that kind of leads you in a bunch of different directions. And it's fun. It's fun to meet people and share things and talk to. You know, I've interviewed a lady who started a business up in Bozeman, Montana. I mean, she cares for property. She was a horse vet and just changed careers and took a risk. And like you said, everybody's got a really interesting story. And I think that's what makes life fun. So anyway, I appreciate your time, Mr. Solomon. It's good talking to you. And thanks for joining me on Upthinking Finance. You were a great host. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.